chapter 4, 21 through 34 is our text, Lord willing. Jesus has just finished the explanation of the soils. He spent a lot of time in that. Uh, I hope that ministered to you. Now he's going to use a few more parables to drive home his big picture. What this tiny little seed called the gospel, the word of God, is what it's going to explode into someday. And you and I are part of that. Listen as we read along. Verse 21, and he, that's Jesus, was saying to them, a lamp is not brought to be put under a basket, is it? Or under a bed? It is not brought to be, is it not brought to be put on a lampstand? For nothing is hidden except to be revealed, nor has anything been secret, but that it would come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he is saying to them, take care what you listen to. By your standard of measure, it will be measured to you, and more will be given you besides. For whoever has, to him more shall be given, and whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. And he was saying, the kingdom of God is like a man who casts seed upon the soil. And he goes to bed at night and gets up by day, and the seed sprouts and grows. How? He himself does not know. The soil produces a crop by itself, first the blade, then the head, then the mature grain in the head. But when the crop permits, he immediately puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. And he said, how shall we picture the kingdom of God, or by what parable shall we present it? It is like a mustard seed, which when sown upon the soil, though it is the smallest of all the seeds that are on, upon the soil, when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and forms large branches so that the birds of the air can nest under its shade. With many parables, he was speaking the word to them so far as they were able to hear it. And he did not speak to them without a parable, but he was explaining everything privately to his own disciples. This is the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Father, we saying to you and told you that you are good. And what a truth that is, Lord. You are so good to us. You have saved us, taken our debt, nailed it to a tree with your son. You have taken away the certificate of death deserving us. Our wages were given to Jesus. He paid for those. You were satisfied with that payment. And you have now made us your children. And even beyond that, Lord, you've made us part of this unbelievable, unbelievable at times, Lord, unimaginable kingdom that you have brought us into. Though we live in one place and maybe spend our time in an isolated area, you have extended your spiritual kingdom to the four corners of this globe. You call people from every walk and tribe and tongue and language, Lord. You bring them in because you had a plan. And you are executing it. And Lord, we do not want to get in the way of that. We do not want to hide the light that you put within us. So today, Lord, may we be hearers of this word. You want to bring a fruitful harvest through us, Lord. Let us hear. 
Let us hear, Lord. Plow our hearts. Father, thank you for being with us today. Lord, we pray for those who could not traveling ill procedures going on, Lord. Uh, Be with these dear ones, Lord. Minister to them. Bring them through. And may we be mindful of them, praying for them, visiting the sick, caring for those, Lord. We love our missionaries. We love those people who have, have sensed your call and have gone somewhere to a different culture, to a different place to proclaim your, go- your gospel. Give them freedom there, Lord. Let them preach your word and bring in great harvests. May we uh, continue to support and pray and go when you allow. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I love this time of year. Um, it's really kind of harvest time. Um, this is our third year here now, and it's a little different here. Uh, you keep thinking it's going to cool off, and it doesn't. And, uh, you know, the leaves change in like February, and, you know, so it's a little different. Um, but it is a great time of year. You know, this is the end of a lot of places around the world, their growing season. And it's time to gather in. It's time to store those things up and get ready for an amazing winter of the provision that God has done. We had the great opportunity of doing that on the ranch, although it was a little bit of hard work as you begin to think, hey, snow is going to fly. Uh, the hay's got to get in the barn to feed all those animals through the winter. Uh, the potatoes got to get in and the, and the animals got to get put in the freezer. I won't go into detail there. They got to get there, you know. Um, things have to happen. You've got to get your wood put up. You know, if you heat with wood, you've got to have that up and ready because winter's coming. And when that finally gets done, when finally all the wood is in and everything's harvested and the winter's starting to fly, there's such a great uh, feeling about that. Uh, I really don't think I want to go do the work anymore that it took to do that. I think I'm beyond those years. Um, but there was such a great feeling when everything was in. Wood was stacked and covered. The freezers were full. And there was a great full of thanksgiving in our hearts. You know, really, this is the joy of harvest. We are going to have a harvest fest at the end of, of uh, October, and we do a great job with that. Shane and Bobby and others are doing a wonderful job getting involved with that. And we're really trying to be gospel-oriented because we want to see the joy of the harvest. Not just people coming here and getting free candy and riding some rides, but really saying, hey, we have the greatest joy you could ever experience right here. We have it. It's a gift from God, and he wants you to have it too. And so harvest is, is a great time of life, and it's, it's a reminder. And in these passages, you'll begin to see the Lord Jesus using parabolic teaching to remind them that though what you see right now, disciples, Peter, James, John, Bartholomew, and, and Philip, and others, it doesn't seem like much. In fact, we're kind of alone. Everybody's starting to leave us. Oh, is there a harvest coming? There would be a young man named Scott Menez brought to the Lord Jesus Christ in 1970. (laughs) That's going to be part of it. (laughs) He's looking out to this great spiritual kingdom that he is going to gather to himself. And these parables, many of them remind us. And he reminds us that we have a part in this. We have a part. Let's look at a couple of thoughts this morning. Number one, the gospel that generates a testimony. When God plants the seed in your heart and he plows that ground and places his word, his truth, the gospel there, it will bring a harvest. (laughs) If you didn't get that out of the last passage, go back and read it. Because if nothing grows, then there was nothing planted. 
Or if something grows that got choked out or couldn't get roots, it means it wasn't in the soil that God prepared. But when he puts good seed in a good ground, the gospel and the word, it generates a testimony. A testimony. A lot of times when we sing, we're, we're singing a testimony. You sing those words. It's why Hayward and Rick and other guys and gals, and when they choose music, it's such an important thing because they're going to put that into our mouths and we're going to say that as a testimony to God. That's why we take very serious what we sing. It's a testimony. And this is what God does. So the parable of soils, it described those hearts that remained unplowed. There's a bunch of people there that reject it. There's this pavement heart and this rocky heart and this infested heart that we looked at. But there's also hearts with good soil. And the word of God described the heart plowed by God and that it was tender and it embraced the gospel. And in the end, in the end, it produced fruit. These parables that he follows up as he ties this teaching, this long day of ministry. Remember, it start with him returning to Capernaum. He couldn't even eat. The people were packed on him. With this last teaching to these disciples of his and the ones that were around him to hear what is the result. These are people unashamed of the gospel. They're unashamed of it. Are you unashamed of Jesus Christ? Are you unashamed to, to mark him as everything in your life? I hope today that will encourage you even more. So Christ uses several analogies. Look at verse 21 as we jump into our text. And he, Jesus, was saying to them, a lamp is not brought to be put under a, a basket. Is it? It's rhetorical, is it? Or under a bed? You, it isn't hard to, uh, in our 21st century to see. <laughs> we've been blessed with lots of electricity here. Um, but if we weren't, I mean, we would all be holding candles or torches. The, the early century church met usually about 4 a.m. on a lot of cases on Sunday mornings because uh, Sunday mornings was the first day of the week to mark the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. But there was not um, light. It, it wasn't light because many of them worked. It wasn't a day off. <laughs> and, and much of the early church was made of slaves. And so they would meet with torches and lights and there sing and praise the Lord and, and study his word together and and it isn't hard to understand that those oil lamps of the first century had some oil in them, a wick, and they would place it somewhere it would give light off. And you've all been there. You know, we live in Hurricane Alley or whatever you want to call it. Electricity goes out. You know, you don't go, you know, tell your son to go get the lantern and, and, and uh, put it under the bed. You know, take the lantern and hang it on the ceiling fan, you know, <laughs> so we can see, right? Get it out there where its light goes, right? So he's giving a very, very practical way. Let the light radiate through the whole room. It, it, it isn't hard. Some, somebody says, well, Scott, sometimes I want you to make more application. Can I read this verse to see if you can make your own application? A lamp is not brought to be put under the basket, is it, or under a bed? Can you make application from that for your spiritual life? If you know Jesus, you should be able to make application to that very easily, knowing what he's talking about, right? He is talking about the gospel, and it must be shed. It must go out where people can see. Are you hiding it? I guess fairly easy, isn't it? He's challenging them. And yet, those darkened to his truth could not understand that. They go, I have no idea. Why? Now he's talking about a lamp. He was talking about a farming lesson a while back. Now he's talking about a lamp. But you, you, you know Christ. <laughs> you know that he's the light of the world. 
Make application. Think through this. Oh, Lord, do I shine you? (laughs) Is there evidence of me with those around me? Do I fill the room with your truth? Jesus' point here is clear. If you've rejected the gospel, there won't be any light. But if you receive the gospel through the sovereign grace of God, don't hide it. Don't hide it. So many loved ones and neighbors and co-workers, they're living in the dark. And they will die in the dark. They need light. And Jesus is telling them, Bring the light. Expose this gift of light to everyone. So God's word is it's amazing. We can follow this light down. I don't have time to go into all this, but it's used for a witness, of course, in this, a testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's used, light's used of truth. Boy, we live in a, a very untruthful world today, don't we? Right? We've seen stuff even on the television this week, things that go on. Um, just amazing the lack of truth that is in our society. Christ, his light, always resembles truth throughout the scripture. Holiness resembles truth. In fact, his holiness is is such a way that often we see the characters of the Bible get up against it and and the light is so bright they they don't know what to do. They had to veil Moses after he got back with being with the light of God. It refers to our spiritual life. Let your spiritual life have brightness and light. But in this illustration here, it refers to the message of the gospel. The message of Jesus Christ who saves sinners. And the seed has produced not just hearers. And this is what, this is what it is here in this text. He is not just producing hearers. The crop that Christ puts into the ground of good soil is not just producing hearers, but proclaimers. Well, that's the big difference. That's the big difference in today's church. There's plenty of hearers. Are there proclaimers? And not all of us do what I do here, right? But all of us, including myself, are proclaimers wherever God sends us. And this is the push here. Peter knew this. He said, look, you're a chosen race. You're a holy priesthood. You're a a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. You're people after God's own possession. He has made you his. And then he makes this great statement in 1 Peter 2, 9. So that, the reason for all of that, making us a people who we were not, this holy ethnos of people, this own nation now, as belonged to Jesus Christ, he says the reason for that, of all that, is that you may proclaim, listen to this, the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Mm, I tell people all the time, don't go tell people what they need, tell them what Jesus did for you. I think so often we just go, you need Jesus. You're going to go to hell. Tell him that he saved you from hell and how he did it. Boy, the Lord can take that and use that a million ways. Can I tell you what Jesus did for me? That's a little, maybe not as offensive, right? What did you do? Well, he, he saved me. He pulled me out of darkness and began to explain. You don't have to even use that verse, but pull, he pulled me out of my sin. They're going to think you're an awful person. Because they're not used to exposing their sin, but you will. You'll say, look, my sins deserve the wages of death, and Jesus took my place. Oh, let that light shine. Those transformed by the good news, this seed, they can't conceal it. 
They can't conceal it. Romans 1.8. First, I thank my God, Paul says, through Jesus Christ for all of you. And then he makes a statement. Listen to this. Because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. Imagine being in a church where the whole world's talking about the faith at Riverbend. Imagine that. I hope we get there. I hope we get there where God says, we're going to use you not only locally, but globally. And they'll talk about a group of people who are so dedicated to the Lord Jesus Christ and his word that it goes out around the world. That's a pretty amazing statement. I read that several times this week and I thought, oh Lord, is that what you're doing with me? Is that what you're doing with our church? How do we get there? Look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 14 through 16. Jesus uses light all the time. The scriptures use this analogy. Matthew chapter 5. He's just preached the Beatitudes on the shores of Galilee. And he begins to illustrate what this life of Beatitudes look like. Verse 13, he says, you're salt. Um, Salt is flavor. You can taste something. I hope when people get around us, they taste Christ. But in verse 14, he says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. That's not America. (laughs) I know politicians have used that, and one one I actually really liked. Um, But that's not really what that verse means. Because if you're in the Philippines... It certainly can't be America. (laughs) So you're a light. You are a gospel presentation to the world. Something that should be set on a hill where all can see and that truth can get out to all that are around it. He goes on. Nor does anyone light a lamp, sounds familiar, and put it under a basket. But on a lampstand it gives light to all those who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that you may see it. Your good works. And look at this. They'll see your good works. And what's going to happen? They're going to glorify God. I pray no one ever glorifies you or me when they come to Jesus Christ. Because they may never have come to Jesus Christ if they do that. They glorify their Father. The Father in heaven. We have, we have baptism coming up. I think next Sunday. And I'm hearing some of the testimonies, and oh my goodness, is it going to be encouraging? Because you know what they're going to glorify? God, Jesus Christ, the work of the Spirit. Now, this in divine instruction is for his disciples here in this text, but it, it's, it's larger, right? It's for us. So Jesus faithfully proclaimed the gospel, and their opportunity is coming, right? And he's preparing them. So, so remember, Jesus is preaching parables. They're a divine judgment to the hard-hearted, right? He's hiding now truth from them. And, and maybe, maybe, maybe the, the disciples started to go, oh boy, I wonder if this change of strategy will get eliminated in this. And I think what the Lord Jesus is going to do is say, look, I'm going to tell you, and we'll, we see in the last part of the text he was explaining to them, because there's some, something coming so great. And you're going to be part of a great commissioning. And you're going to be sent out to do something you can't barely imagine. You're still worrying about who's going to sit on your left and right. I got something so much greater. The effects of millions and millions of Christians 2,000 years later will feel. What an amazing testimony to that. So the Lord would never intend for his gospel to be obscured from his elect. If you're of his elect, you can understand this. You can read it and you can apply it. Look at verse 22 with me. For nothing is hidden except to be revealed or 
has nothing, um, has, has anything been secret but that which will come to light. In other words, there were occasions that the truth was hidden. It was obscured from those who reject Jesus. But there's coming this time where all the hidden things, the things they didn't quite understand, um, this, this thread of redemptive history that was working through the Old Testament, the truth of who the Messiah really was, what Jesus Christ was going to do with his life, that was going to be revealed. And that era was coming quickly. He had three years with these men. That's it. People go, well, why is seminary three or four years long? Well, Man, we fall short of being the master teacher, but it is a time of preparation, right? And he's preparing these guys, and they're going to go out, and they're going to be called the apostles, and they're going to preach, and God is going to birth the church through their message. <laughs> That's pretty exciting. Twelve guys, one's a traitor, walking around with Jesus going, why are you telling stories? Why'd you do this? Hey, can, by the way, can we sit on your left and right? He's going to do something great with these guys. And so we continue to do that. And I, as I thought this week, I thought, Lord, we're still involved in this. There's individual proclamation. I, I'm sure some of you shared the gospel with somebody this week. You, you shared the, the great saving grace of God of what he'd done in your life. And then we do it corporately as we're doing tonight or this morning. We're corporately preaching the gospel. We do these things. That's, that's what, what Christ is talking about. There's something greater coming. Look at verse 23 with me. If anyone has ears, let him hear. Let it, if anyone has ears to hear, everybody has ears, let him hear, right? And so here Jesus highlights the importance again of what he just said. It's imperative, disciples, that you're careful listeners. And I wrote in my notes that we, listen to this word, that we're fruitful listeners, right? There's a difference. There are churches across America who are just listening right now. Uh, across America. Fill churches full of great music and great preaching, and they're just full of listeners. Jesus is asked for fruitful listeners. I think there's a great difference. It's ones who take the truth and apply it. Second thought, sharing the gospel is always rewarded. Sharing the gospel is always rewarded. Look at verse 24 and 25 with me. And he, Jesus, was saying to them, take care what you listen to. By your standard of measure, it will be measured to you, and more will be given you besides. For whoever has, to him more shall be given. And whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. Notice in the first verse in 24 there, he says, in other words, Jesus is saying, Jesus is commanding the attention because truth, this truth that he's teaching is explained to establish this in their minds. He wants them to get this. And the same for us today. We don't want to be just listeners. We want to be fruitful listeners. I was talking with somebody this week, and we are talking about how we make decisions. Basically, how we come to obedience and follow the Lord. One of the things we establish is that when we listen to God's word, we we. we uh, uh, gain a clearer understanding of God. And that truth that we gain drives our decisions. So I say it this way, theology drives all my decisions. Let me say it a little easier for you don't like the word theology. Your view of God drives your decisions. And you try to show me different. 
You probably talk about circumstances, and you can go down all those things, and I will show you each and every time your view of God drives your decisions. You either have a growing, a growing high and lifted up view of God and all that he's accomplished, or you have a very me-centered view in God. You try to sneak him in in different places. And then decisions get difficult. Marriages get difficult. Parenting gets difficult. Everything gets difficult. And life is difficult because of sin, but it gets more difficult because you have not, or we have not, allowed God to be the center of our thinking in all things. And so that's why he's saying to these guys here surrounded around him, hey, take care what you listen to. Because whatever you listen to is going to drive your decision making. Listen to the word. He's pushing them in this area. So this is a serious charge here in these verses, both to the disciples and to us. This is talking about a promise of eternal reward of fruitfulness. Notice the rest of the verse. Verse uh, uh, 24. By the standard of measure, it will be measured to you. See, we, we love harvest time. We, it's a great time. Things are coming. The hay's in the stack. Potatoes are in the storage. You know, food's canned. Meat's in the fridge. All that kind of stuff. What a great feeling. But if we are lazy with the gospel, the harvest is little. You go, well, wait a minute, Scott. We're a doctrines of grace church. We're reformed in our theology. God is going to save who he's going to save. The question is whether he's going to use us or not. Does that make sense? This is a harvest situation. Either we have the harvest of joy because we lined our lives up with him. We said, I'm going to know you, God. I'm going to understand what you are and who you are and what you do and why you do it as best as I can through the word of God. And I'm going to line my life up by the grace of God, repent quickly when I sin, confess those things, Turn from those things and walk with you because I want the joy of the harvest. I want to be a part of it. I don't want that guy or that gal getting it all. I want some of it, right? And he's pushing them here. And if we're faithful and diligent with the gospel, I think what he's saying in this text is you can expect a harvest. It's hard. Sometimes I've had brothers and sisters come up and say, Scott, I've, I've never led a person to Christ. I've never led a person to Christ. Now, the saving of that person is not your responsibility. We're going to talk about that in a minute. God has to do that. But are you working at it? <laughs> is there someone in your life, a nurse at the hospital, um, a neighbor, a coworker, someone that you would say, Lord, it's worth investing this truth in this person. I don't know what you're going to do with them. I don't know how that seed works once it gets in the ground, but I'm going to go out and throw it out there. See, this is what he's after. See, Jesus is making a clear point that those who are faithful, they dispense the gospel, they dispense the seed, and they can expect an eternal reward of harvest for their diligent efforts. A real good friend of mine um, 25 years they were in the uh, mountains in Peru and did Bible translation, preached the gospel forever. They really never saw anybody come to Christ, but they finished that translation. Once they left, um, I think he, he get tra- no, she, she got something like, uh, I can't remember the D's, Parkinson or something like that, and they came off the field. The next missionaries that came in watched almost the whole tribe come to know the Lord. That's harvest. 
So, so Paul says it a little way. Some of you go, well, I'm not a farmer, Scott. You keep using all these farmers. Well, you know, anything about sports? 1 Corinthians 9, 24 and 25. Do you not know that those who run in a way run a race, right? But not all receive the prize. Then he says this. Run in such a way that you may win. What's he talking about? Just being competitive Christians? We've got enough of those. Oh, he's talking about the gospel. Get in the game. Quit faking injuries. Too many people on the DL. We need players. We need outfielders and infielders and linemen. We need people ready to go. This is, this is what he's trying to get you back engaged. Everyone who competes in the game exercises self-control in all things. They then do receive a perishable wreath. Now look at this. Um, so they get some, you know, trophy. I've thrown so many trophies out through the years, but we an imperishable one. Ah, oh, that's, see, that's the reward he's talking about here. He's emphasizing these things. So here, in this text, we see a promise from Jesus that God will bless our gospel efforts. By your standard of measure, he says, verse 24 there, it will be measured to you. He would bless the disciples' work according to the effort they put into it. And oh, what effort they put in it. Remember right in John 21? Uh, you're all going to die. John may live a little longer, but you're all going to die. That's pretty much what happened. <laughs> Guys crucified upside down, slain with swords, heads cut off. Jesus, in fact, is saying, that effort will go far beyond what you ever understand, Peter. A little boy named Scott Menez will be saved someday because you were faithful and the scriptures were written and I rescued him from his sins. Put your name in there. This is, this is what he's doing. He goes on to say, and more will be given to you. More will be given to you. So, so his disciples and us, I think, we scatter the word of God and, and we can trust that it will produce greater than our own efforts. You go, Scott, I've been witness to a person. It doesn't seem like there's anything there. We've seen people get, you're witnessing to somebody else and somebody that's been hearing, <laughs> hearing it all go on. They start to engage with you and that person gets saved. You just don't realize what God's doing all the time. Now notice verse 25. For whoever has to him more shall be given. So the fruitful labor of the gospel will be driven with a desire to glorify the Lord. And to this one, Jesus says, more will be given. Now, this is not a prosperity gospel verse. And let me be very clear, there are no prosperity verses, uh, gospel verses in the Bible. Now, this is one, of course, they like to use. It simply means that God gives more empowerment, more boldness to those who share the gospel. He gives more joy to those who share the gospel. He gives more contentment in Christ to those who share the gospel. He gives more reward to those who share the gospel. That's what it means. And most of those rewards are not in heaven. Peter died probably dead broke telling his wife to keep the faith as they hung him upside down. But do you want to be in line behind him when they're handing out crowns? <laughs> or that beautiful woman who has been down in uh, uh, children's ministry hoping I'm not going too long today. I, you know, she's going to be ahead <laughs> if there's a line, right? <laughs> because there's so many ways to serve and bring glory and be a part of the gospel ministry. You want more joy? Know the gospel and share it with somebody. Well, I just need more money. Yeah, good luck with that. 
You can have all the money in the world and die and go to hell. You want joy? Share the gospel. You want contentment? It's one of the biggest issues we deal with as Christians is our contentment, isn't it? Not content with the person God gave me. Not content with the home I live in. Cars I drive. My kids, my grandkids, whatever. I mean, you know, I hear stuff all the time. Want to be content? Share the gospel. I promise you, sharing the gospel causes you to have contentment and joy that you don't have otherwise. He's pushing, isn't he, here? Notice in verse 25, here's a warning. Wow, whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. This is a warning to that fruitless, shallow, hard-hearted, rocky-hearted, religious unbelief, right? That's what he's coming out of. He's been teaching that. There's nothing there. You want to just spring up and go, well, I just like going to church because I feel joyful. I struggle all week long, and I come back, and I try to feel joyful. And you go, uh, am I part of that shallow one? See, there's nothing there. And, And even what you have, he's saying, if you're not truly in faith, if you're not truly belonging to the Lord, everything you have is going to take from you and give it to somebody else. They're going to have all that joy of those things. The passage in Luke, he goes a little farther with the corresponding text. He says this, So take care of what you listen to, for whoever has to him more shall be given. Now listen to this. Whoever does not have, and this is the thought that Luke adds in here, even what he thinks he has shall be taken away from him. Man, I read that text this week and I go, well, isn't that true? Most deceived people, religiously deceived people think they have eternal life. If you ask them what's going to happen to you when you die, they're going to they say, I'm going to go to heaven. And they cannot tell you clearly how that takes place. Uh, have you ever done a funeral where they say the guy's in hell? They just come right out. Yeah, he's in hell. Nobody says that. Everybody goes to heaven, it seems like. The verse is saying, whatever you have, whatever you think you have, you think you have a relationship with God, you think you're going to gain rewards for him someday, he will say, I never knew you. You thought you had heaven, and you end up with hell. We just filled in this program's progress in our staff meeting, reading an abridged version of it. One of the things we were struck is the river of death was difficult for Christian and hopeful to get across. But here comes ignorance. Remember him? He takes a boat. (laughs) We sat there and cried and laughed thinking, man, Christian and hopeful struggled across the river of death because sometimes death is not sweet for believers. They suffer through death and end times and uh, the end of their life and all of that. And and then they come across and, of course, the gates of heaven are open to them. They present their certificate to the Lord and he welcomes them in. And then comes ignorance. He's over in a boat going across. Well, I don't know what the problem is. River of death pretty easy. And as he gets to the gate of heaven. He is rejected by God and sent to another door. And there the flames of hell engross him. What you think you have will be taken from you. That's an amazing thought, isn't it? It's an amazing thought. Titus, Paul wrote to Titus about false converts. He says, they profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him, being detestable, disobedient, and worthless for any good works. Matthew, Jesus said, depart from me, those who practice lawlessness. Matthew chapter 7, he ends out the Sermon of the Mount, the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher. And he says, two houses, they look identical. Same shutters, same shingles, same paint, look really good, but they're on a beach. There's a storm coming. 
it's judgment. One is utterly destroyed because it has no foundation. It looks right. It looks good. But in the end, total destruction. Three, the gospel produces a faithful patience and a joyful harvest. The gospel produces a faithful patience and a joyful harvest. Notice he speaks, verse 26 here, and Jesus said to them, the kingdom of God is like a man who casts seed upon the soil. So here he's using the kingdom of God in a greater sense, right? He is going to allude to his physical kingdom. We'll talk about that in just a minute. But he is talking about the greater spiritual kingdom here. The kingdom of God is like something, right? He begins to describe it. And he says the kingdom, of, the kingdom is like something, like a man who casts seed upon the soil. That's, that's what one sowing, the gospel, the, the truth of God's word, right? And this means we're part of something greater than we often understand. And then he starts to unveil this. Verse 27, 28. And he goes to bed at night and he gets up by day. The seed sprouts and grows. How? He himself does not know. You ever plant a garden, right? The soil produces a crop by itself. First the blade, then the head, then the mature grain in the head. So the sower, he sows the seed of, a, or she sows the seed of the gospel, and then he just goes to bed. You go to sleep. Now this isn't being lazadaisical with the gospel. What it's teaching is, you do your job, God says, I'll do mine. He's making very clear that this is my job, right? So the sower, he goes to sleep. The sower can't make the seed germinate. He can't make the seed sprout. The sower can't produce new life for something that died, dies because the seed decays and from that comes life. Jesus makes this illustration about his gospel and his death. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, in John 12, 24, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He's speaking of his own death. But that's basically what happens when we put a seed into the soil. So the soil cannot... The sower, excuse me, the, sower, the sower cannot fully understand how the seed comes to life. He plants, he waters, he waits. Days go by, weeks go by, time goes by. If you've ever farmed or planted anything, you know this. You pray for rain, huh, Rick? <laughs> you pray for water. You pray for God's blessing on your crops. And you, and, you, and you pull weeds and you do what you can do. But ultimately, you need God to grow that thing. And then, finally, as Jesus so clearly does here, the first green shoot appears. It pushes up through the soil. And then the blade becomes evident. And if you've ever grown grain, man, that's a cool feeling. You're going, okay, we're going to have something to feed this, week, this year. And I mean, that's, that's what you need. And, and then it comes up, and pretty soon it's just a carpet of green out there. And then as it grows, it starts to wave in the wind. There's no stalk in it yet, but there's blade, and it's tall now, and the wind's pushing it around. And eventually a stalk, a head starts to form. And if you've ever been around weed, you go out and pluck that, and it's got milk in it. And if you squeeze it, you can, you know, squeeze it onto your brother. <laughs> uh, and it goes, but it's very bitter. If you taste it, it's very bitter. But then as the stalk grows, the sugar comes up the stalk and, and it starts to dry from the bottom up. It turns brown and comes up and it's chasing, it's chasing the sugar up the stalk and it fills its way into the head. The head moves from milk to dough to eventually to a hard seed. And that's when he said, that's when the sickle comes. And he comes and he harvests these things. And this is spiritual transformation. This is spiritual regeneration that God does. He does that work. 
And he expects us to be faithful sowers of that truth. Just preach the word, Timothy, Paul told him. Preach the word in season and out of season. I'll bring the harvest in. I'll do what you can't do. And isn't that a little bit um, comforting? I mean, there was a time when I was young, a uh, church planner, driving out through the de- uh, deserts of Nevada and, and southeastern Oregon and, and planting Bible studies and starting stuff where there had not been churches ever before. And at times, seeing the gospel reject over time and time again and good, healthy rancher people that say, you know, why do I need your God? You know, we're good people. We pay our taxes. We buy American cars. What else do you want us to do? And then the truth of God's word would remind you, oh, Scott, he never asked you to save them. Why? Because you can't. And so you begin to put your faith and trust in him to do what you cannot do, and then it emboldens you, right? It isn't, oh, well, I, you know, I just, hey, there's the gospel, do what you want. No, you start to get emboldened, and you start getting passionate, and you start praying for people. It starts to work within your life as you give out this great seed And then you become a person that says, I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. And you put your life to that work. See, it's not about human manipulation or a man-centered techniques to create some new heart. I am not here in any way to get you to pray some prayer, walk some aisle. Now, if God pushes you out and you and you want to come talk to us or go into our prayer room afterwards or meet with somebody or, or talk with me down here. If God's doing that, I want to be a part of that. But we believe God saves you. And we are the church. And so the church is made up of saved people. And the Bible's pushing us today to say, what are we doing with this glorious gospel? Are we willing to preach it, to share it? I, I just can't help but understand the comfort the disciples must have had as they heard this. As they began to realize what God was doing. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3 with me. Just a cross-reference text here. Because these truths, the one thing about studying the word of God and preaching it is the scriptures support the scriptures, right? And so we we find this kind of teaching all over. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 4. For when one says, I am Paul, I am of Paul, or another says, I am apostle, are you not mere men? I mean, the worst thing we want is, oh, you know, I go to Scott's church, please don't say that. It's offensive to everybody. Don't say that. And this is what he's saying. Look, I, I, I am of Paul, I'm of apostle. Verse 5, what then is apostle and what is Paul? Servants through whom you believe, even as God gave opportunity to each one. That's all we, we were just a messenger. I planted apostle water, but God was causing the growth. <laughs> what confidence. I mean, I appreciate you. Some people say, I got saved under Scott's ministry. I get it. I appreciate that. You've said, I've heard people say that under our, our dear Pastor Roy's ministry. Praise the Lord for all that. But none of us want any of that glory. <laughs> we're afraid of that, actually. You got saved by an almighty God who plowed your heart and put his truth into it. Give him the credit. And that's what Paul's after here. Verse 7, so neither the one who plants or the one who waters, look at this phrase in the NASB, is anything. (laughs) There's a good reminder. (laughs) 
Don't, don't make yourself out something you aren't. You're a messenger. You're a messenger of the Lord Jesus Christ. You carry the message of reconciliation, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And then he goes on to say, but God who causes the growth. And you go, well, what's our part? Verse 8, now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. Isn't that what he's talking about? Hey, get in the game. <laughs> God's hand and crowns out at the end of, the to- at the end of life. If you do things from your heart, they won't burn up. In chapter 3, he goes on to say, all that stuff's wood, hay, and stubble. Hey, look, I did this, and I had this many confessions, and this many prayers, and hmm, poof. Praise God, he let me share the gospel with somebody today. Will you pray with me that this person will receive it? See, God honors those things. And, and one more thought before I leave this point. Listen, Paul ached over loss. Romans uh, 9, 1 and 10, 1, both passages, you can read them together. He said, I'd give my own salvation, in my words here, I'm paraphrasing. He would give his own salvation if he could for the sake of his brethren. Well, that's what I'm telling you. When you get into the gospel, it isn't like this coldless plead. Well, hey, it's up to you guys. You want to be saved or not? You know, God's going to have to do the work. Oh, it's, it, it grasps you. It gets a hold of you, right? And you want to share it with more people. So verse 29, he says, but when the crop permits, he immediately puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. A sickle was a sharp uh, uh, metal object, kind of had a bow to it, had a a stick or a pole tied to it, and they would come in and slice it. You cut it about two or three inches up from the stalk. Uh, we drove swathers that came through the field and did that, or a combine would take the grain, take it all and take the grain out. Um, but that back then, that sickle, when you put your sickle into it, you didn't do it before it was ready. If you put it in too early, it's bitter, they won't eat it. Put it in just right, it's sweet. And anybody who's ever farmed, you know, you pull that grain, you go, oh, that baby's ready. Let's hit this. And that's what God does. So, hey, plant seeds, pray, water, uh, pull weeds where you can, and beg God for a harvest and get ready. Get your sickle ready because the harvest will come. The gospel does not return void. Last thought, four, a humble confidence in the gospel and its unimaginable harvest. Look with me at verse 30. He said, how shall we picture the kingdom of God Or by what parable shall we present it? Here Jesus is going to give a parable of the kingdom of God and show that small beginnings have unimaginable outcome. And we're going to finish this and and then turn to this the end of the day, what Jesus does as he controls his creation next week. But I just want to put a couple thoughts into your mind of what he's doing here. He's going to take the smallest seed known to farming in that day, right, the mustard seed was much smaller than um, oats or barley or wheat or anything like that. And he's going to prove that this thing that seems so small and so insignificant can become so uh, enormous. And, and I, I can tell you, brothers and sisters, through the years of sharing the gospel with people and preaching truth, I have watched person after person through the years be a be one who is on the road to hell, just like myself. One has nothing to do with God, and they become this person that all you want to do is be with them. You just want to be around them because they love the Lord Jesus Christ so much. And so, as we'll wrap this chapter up in this day, I think Mark 4 is just one full day um, of his life. 
and we see Jesus walk on water and calm storms and do all that we'll see in the end of the text as he has total control of his creation, we'll see that he goes, look, guys, the truth I'm giving to you, listen to it. Obey it. Because there's something coming that's unimaginable. And that was the church. And eventually the, the, the physical kingdom of Christ on the earth. And we will see him and be with him in those days. Father, thank you for an opportunity to scratch at this message a little bit, Lord. There's so many great truths in here, Lord, and we sometimes feel we're just scratching at them a little bit. But your word is bottomless, it's endless, Lord. Your ways are fathom, fathomable, Lord, and we, we want to know you. And Lord, I know many people in here believe that our doctrine controls our life. What we believe about you, God, determines how we live our lives, Lord. And so, Lord, let that be a reflection in each one of us, Lord, as we examine our lives now and we say, Lord, do I love the gospel? Will I give it to someone else? Will I trust you with the results of it? Will I have a sickle in hand ready for you to do the, do the work to grow that person in faith and allow me to be a part of the reward of the harvest? Oh, Lord, may we be a church that's known for that. That around the world we would present Jesus Christ as the way, the truth, and the life. And we would present that unashamed, knowing that it's the power of God to save anyone who believes, Lord. So, Lord, help Riverbend, Lord. Help us be a church that is consumed with your gospel, Lord. I thank you for all the brothers and sisters in this room who are, Lord, who do love your gospel and are sharing it, Lord. Empower them, strengthen them, Lord. Help them to be encouraged. And, Lord, I do pray for those that maybe even in this room are wrestling with their own faith. They think the seed has been planted there, Lord, but they have not seen fruit in their life. Lord, please not, let them not be the one who thinks they have something and even that is taken from them, Lord. So, Father, please do not let anyone leave here. I would beg you, Lord, to save someone who doesn't know you, Lord. Open their heart to this truth. Father, we want to conclude now with worshiping your son for what he did by remembering the table. In Jesus' name, amen.